All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Elise Hugh, NPR News, Jeju, South Korea. Gregory Warner, NPR News, Addis Ababa. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Anoush Samarodi. We spend a lot of time here thinking about how technology, particularly our phones and apps and the web, how they all affect how we act, how we live as human beings. But we're going to flip the script a little today. We're going to take a little trip around the world to ask, how does culture shape people's digital habits? Thanks to NPR, National Public Radio, We're going to talk wine, good food, and phone etiquette with Paris correspondent Eleanor Beardsley. We'll talk about how Korea's super-fast Wi-Fi supercharges pretty much everything with correspondent Elise Hugh, and about how the explosion of Facebook and cell phone use is empowering, but also sometimes endangering East Africans with Gregory Warner. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride from wherever you are. You're flying note to self. First stop, we called Eleanor Beardsley in Paris, where she's lived with her family for 12 years. She was home, relaxing this particular evening, in what I can only imagine is her tastefully decorated Parisian flat. I'm sitting in my little office in my apartment. I, I'm imagining that you have a perfectly tied scarf and there's a glass of Beaujolais next to you. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Living here in New York, like, there's this myth that surrounds the French. Like, not only do they know how to eat better, they know how to parent without being overbearing. They seem to have this, like, wonderful touch when it comes to life's finer things. So I guess I was wondering, what is their relationship like with their phones and their technology and social media. Let me first start by saying that, you know, we are in old Europe, and I would say France, Germany, other countries too. There are ingrained rules here, etiquette, that I almost feel like we lost in America. But I'll just give you two examples. You know, you don't wear a hat inside if you're a man, and that's standard ABCs of etiquette. I can't tell you how many American tourists wear baseball hats in restaurants. And it kind of shocks you when you live here. Second thing is like kids in France. An adult comes in the room, you have to greet them. Bonjour, monsieur. Bonjour, madame. If it's your neighbors, you have to kiss them on the cheek. I go to the U.S. and kids, they don't even notice you or say hello. So, I mean, that's just to lay the groundwork. So you extend that. It does extend to things like cell phones. Okay, you see that the society is sort of trying to protect itself from this invasion of technology in some ways. So my husband, 
you know, who works at a French company, he says, in meetings, your phone is down and you don't go on it. And he said, at business lunches, you would not take a call unless you asked the people there, can I take this? Or it's very important. I mean, it would not be well seen. That's not just for older people. I talked to a young guy. He's in graduate school. He said, lunch is still off limits. It's sacrosanct. You, huh. you don't take calls at lunch. There's also a right of disconnecting. This is France's administrative court that recently ruled that tech workers have a right to health and rest and that they were not sufficiently being protected by existing laws. This idea of a right of disconnecting, I think, would also strike people as like, I don't want that right necessarily, you know? Right. No, it's true. And it's a couple of people I talked to, they said, you don't look at work emails after work. That's the difference here. In America, it's you're just constantly working. We have this work ethic where you're seen as lazy if you're not reachable. People hear it when they go on vacation, they're gone, and you're not going to be able to get them. And so there's a great respect for that. You've got to shut off to be able to be your best when you are on. And do people write out-of-office messages like, bonjour, I'm not available? Like, is it the same like in the United States? I never see those messages. That's funny you say that. I don't think I've ever seen one of those when I think about it. And I'm always getting them. I love getting them in the summer. It just cracks me up. Like, let's say it's July 5th, and you get a message that says, I'm sorry, I will be gone from the office from July 5th to July 12th. Like, it's so long, and or even shorter than a week sometimes. I'm like, oh, my God. People here go away for three weeks, and you don't even have a message like that. Oh, you're saying Americans say that. Americans have those messages. Oh, they do like, it when they're out of the yeah. office for the afternoon here. Or even, oh, God. No, no, <laughs> no. You would never see that here. You don't, yeah, God, no, that urgency to reach someone. No, you don't feel that here like that. I saw that in January last year that there was a new law that was passed to reduce exposure to Wi-Fi so that Wi-Fi is actually banned in French nursery schools and it's minimized in schools for kids up to 11 years old, that the Wi-Fi routers have to be turned off when they're not actually being used. Did you hear about this? Did you talk about it with people? Did that surprise you at all? You know, I did. And there's a lot of people here are worried about electromagnetic waves and and that. And so there is a big discussion about that. But there is a lot to be said about, you know, people like to buy local fresh foods. We take it back to food, but it is sort of similar. It's like what you put in your body, the waves that are around your body. And no, if you don't know, then you just don't embrace it. In preschool, you know, kids in nursery school and preschool should be protected from that. They don't need that yet, so let's keep them away from that. The other thing I'm wondering about is in terms of, like, changing attitudes, considering the recent terrorist attacks, has that altered people's beliefs in a right to privacy and a right to not have law enforcement know what's in someone's phone or have access to their phone or their files? You know, France passed last summer before the second wave of attacks a huge surveillance bill that goes so far. I mean, the police have the right to bug your phone, basically. Hmm. And now France is under a state of emergency. They can do anything they want, basically. No, there has not been an outcry. So with the privacy thing, is that just because, you know, I mean, this is a, a people who have been deeply, deeply shaken. And so they've said, we can't live like this. And so, yes, we will hand over the right to privacy. Yeah. I mean, people, they want these people caught. Yeah, I think at this point. But, I mean, the state of emergency can't be extended forever. And I know it's interesting because it's the country of, like, freedom of expression and liberty, you know, individual liberties and privacy. And then 
Yeah, I think people are at a, at a, it's, it's a critical time, which is more important. Yeah. And I think people are still weighing that right now. I, I wonder if it's just a matter of time until the U.S. has that sort of reckoning as well. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. Thank you, Eleanor. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. 24 du Mans. 24 du Mans. Just a quick update to my conversation with Eleanor. France's state of emergency has been extended by two months to cover the Euro 2016 soccer tournament and the legendary Tour de France. Also, a new law there makes it illegal for companies with 50 or more employees to send email after work. So that's how the French do tech. Of course it all comes back to good food. Slowing down to enjoy life a little. Why wouldn't you? If you lived in France. In a minute, go east with me, my friend, and on to Seoul and the fastest Wi-Fi in the world. Le pied à la planche, c'est comme ça qu'on gagne les 24 heures. We're back. It's Note to Self. I'm Manoush Samarodi. And we're on a bit of a mini world tour with our favorite NPR international correspondents. They are talking with us about the cultures of the countries they cover and how it influences the way that people use their technology. So we crossed France off our list. But what about a country that has been a big influence on the design and production of everything digital that we all use? Hello from Seoul. I called Elise Hugh from My Kitchen. NPR's Seoul correspondent stayed up late to tell me about digital life in Korea and Japan. I am 13 hours ahead of you, Manoush. So I can tell you in advance that the day is going to be great. Yeah, Elise kind of lives in the future and not just because of her time zone. It makes sense that I'm in the future because South Korea in a lot of ways is ahead of the United States, especially when it comes to technology. Broadband speeds here are the fastest in the world. The goal is that by 2020, you'll be able to download an entire feature-length movie in one second. And so already the Wi-Fi speeds in Seoul and in South Korea generally are twice that of the average American, but they're going for even faster. So, I mean, that's so interesting to me. I'm like, okay, so the Wi-Fi, the broadband is incredibly fast, like on a day-to-day basis. Does that mean like people are using different kinds of apps? How does that change behavior? Well, the most notable thing that you'll see is far more reliance on your smartphone for everything because you're not having to have any load times. There is public Wi-Fi that blankets the entire city. And so with these fast internet speeds, you're not having to make considerations or sacrifices of anything that you might want to watch. So I see a lot more video use, live video watching. When I first got to Seoul, I covered a phenomenon called mukbang. Have you heard of it yet? What's that? No. What is that? So mukbang, um, it translates to eating room or eating broadcast specifically. And what it is, is it has a cult fandom, and it's South Koreans who binge eat 
hours and hours on camera, like three or four hours in one broadcast, and then become sort of brands. And they develop audiences around this. And so there's all these mukbang stars that just binge eat on their webcams. And thousands of people will watch them each night as they do this. And they stuff themselves every single night? Uh, the one that I interviewed broadcasts herself every single night, Monday through Friday, four hours a night. And it's the only meal she eats, but it's like 7,000 calories because she starts at like 7 o'clock at night and will keep eating until 11. And how many people are watching her chow down? Well, she's one of the top 100 mukbang stars in South Korea. So that night, it's like 4,000 people will watch her at once. And she makes money because you can do like micropayments to award her. Oh, my God. So yeah, so the top mukbang stars can make thousands of dollars, yeah, per month. It can be a living if you are a huge mukbang star. So it's really fascinating. But it's evidence of sort of technology aiding a small sort of niche industry, right? Because people can watch live video. And so where we're watching, you know, Facebook Live and Periscope kind of take off in the United States, but in a more Mm -hmm. experimental way, South Korea has been doing live video far earlier and far longer. They had more runtime because they've had the mobile broadband speed or the Wi-Fi speeds to support it. Hmm. So this begs the question, like to me, I'm thinking, well, that would mean that I would be on my phone literally all the time because right now when I get on the subway, I make sure that I have loaded it up with stuff to do or make sure that podcasts are downloaded. But if I didn't have to worry about that, then I think I would be on my phone all the time. And on the one hand, that sounds like awesome, like productivity. On the other hand, what does that mean for like social etiquette? Well, what it means is kids are glued to their screens. Adults are glued to their screens. If I look around on the subway, because you're connected, you can be connected all the time. Everybody is connected. There are smartphone addiction camps. Koreans check smartphone apps an average of 84 to 85 times a day because they're so addicted to the mobile messaging app, Kakao Talk. So Kakao Talk. Oh, I've heard about Kakao Talk. Yes. yes. Tell me about it. Kakao Talk is awesome. Very simply stated, it's a mobile messaging app where we're used to in the United States of sort of going to Uber if we need to hail a cab and then ordering dinner on a different service or using yet another app to figure out a map to get where we want to go. You can do all of that within a single mobile messaging app here in Asia. In Korea, it's Kakao Talk. In China, it's WeChat. In Japan and Taiwan, it's Line. But these mobile messaging apps are sort of all-encompassing. They do so much more than what we're used to doing with messengers in the West. Okay, so another question for you. One thing that really surprised me was Eleanor we asked her about like out of office automated email messages. She says she's never, ever seen one of those because the French like, duh, of course, like when I'm on vacation, I'm not available. You know, they're gone for the summer. Do Koreans use these automated messages as far as you know, when they go on vacation? That's a good question. Because of the popularity of Kakao Talk, email isn't that common. So everybody Uh, has Kakao Talk. So I'm a parent. And instead of a parent group that happens on Google Groups or any sort of email, we just created a parent group on Kakao on the first day. And so you can just message the entire class of the other moms and dads. It's a very sort of messaging first kind of culture. So to ask something less about just regular everyday society, let's I want to just ask you about privacy and surveillance. Are people concerned about that at all? Is it something that people talk about? 
Is there a sense that the, they don't want the government being able to see what's in their phones? Well, this is a culture in which you know, the government is far more intrusive in daily lives. This is a society that sort of knows it's being watched, a government that censors internet access to not only porn sites, but also North Korean information sites, because they argue that they don't want communist ideas infiltrating (laughs) their people, even in 2016. And so it is quite insidious in a lot of ways, But I also think the public here seems to not only be aware, but almost sort of used to it. Oh, Elise, this has been great. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so glad to do it. A little tired, guys. Being on your phone nonstop sounds absolutely exhausting. I think here in the U.S., we're actually even starting to chill out a little bit on that one. Time for our final stop. I'm the East Africa correspondent for NPR. I'm based in Nairobi. Welcome to Kenya. Please meet your host, Gregory Warner. Since I got here in 2012 to now, the number of smartphone users has doubled. So it's, you know, the etiquette is just being figured out. When people have any disposable income, they will immediately upgrade their phone. Just the amount of income that is spent as a percentage of total income on a phone, it's a major, major purchase. And that's a huge deal for people when when that happens. So let's say you go out for dinner in sort of a middle-class restaurant. Is it acceptable to whip out your phone or is that frowned upon? My experience is definitely that your phone is there on the table, ringing, (laughs) buzzing. Right. But... You're allowed to take it. It was very interesting. Eleanor, when we we were talking about out-of-office responses on email, and Eleanor, like, laughed. She was like, uh, n- what? Like, if you're out of the office on Friday, you say that you won't be there in New York? I was like, yeah. She's like, oh, no. Like, you don't say that. You're just not available, period. And then Elise laughed and was like, oh, you're never not available because everybody's on this one chat app. What is the status with some of the people that you deal with? If they're away, do you get a... Email response? Email is a terrible way to reach anybody here. I'm definitely on like a profusion of social media chat channels that certainly none of my American friends are on or very few of them, but they are just often the most secure way of communicating. Emo or Viber or WhatsApp, definitely. So when you're setting up an interview, is that how you connect with people? Well, it depends on what country. I mean, definitely in Ethiopia, which is seen to be a country that's very much monitoring the lives of its citizens. In Rwanda, people are also very concerned about being monitored. I mean, like, I'm really struck living here how accessible um, even, like, really high-level public officials, really high-level, like, ministers are on their cell phone. Like, I butt-dialed a minister recently... (laughs) And, like, I saw my phone that it had called and she'd answered and it was Sunday and I felt terrible. The etiquette is to answer your phone. One thing that it seems uh, very striking to me is that people use their phone. I mean, we're so behind in the United States using your phone to pay for things. Right. So M-Pesa and Pesa is the Swahili word for money. So it's M-Pesa. It's basically like Google Wallet. So you have 
your account, which is linked to your phone number, and you have money basically in your account that's stored with your phone company. And then you can send money to another person's phone number who has also an account with that company. It's like in a country which has no or very few credit cards, where actually banking is a fairly new thing. There's not much banking penetration. So a lot of the people I will pay, especially casual laborers, they're not going to take a check. They're not going to take certainly a credit card. So all of a sudden I can just call them on the phone and pay them. And now you can even pay them in a different country. And it's pretty awesome. And then on top of that service, you can get a loan from your phone company based on your history of paying your Impesa bills. Then people know, hey, he's credible. He pays his bills every month. Let's loan him. 50,000 shillings. Which is how much? That's about 500 bucks. Okay, so small loans. That is fascinating. You know, there's lots of examples of apps that are incredibly instrumental. Like I was talking to this company recently. They have this, this app called Toto Health, right? So Toto means child in Swahili. And Toto Health is essentially monitors mothers and their newborns and does it by text messaging and it's like sends out messages about health and you know what you should do like if your baby's crying or if if you if your baby has a strange red welt you know you take a picture of it really quickly and you text and you say is this something i need to go to a doctor immediately and if you do of course there's no ambulances in nairobi so they hook you up with a driver who immediately takes you to the, so it's a full service kind of health system but what's also interesting about it is that it's a data monitoring system where They were able to spot, they say, this outbreak of cholera in this particular area that the Kenyan health authorities had no idea about. Okay, so the last topic I want to hit on really is privacy surveillance. You know, to me, as a Mm -hmm. Western media consumer, it's really Westgate, the attack on the mall that happened in 2013. What have been the repercussions from that? So the fact is that telecoms have an enormous amount of data on individuals. Basically, it's all about your phone. So I pay things on my phone. I talk on my phone. I get my internet on my phone. As a result, like a phone company like Safaricom or Airtel knows a tremendous amount, as we know from big data. I mean, that data will become more and more valuable. I think Ethiopia is the best example in terms of my region of a country that's using monitoring and hacking and all kinds of ways of spying on its citizens. Is this something that you think probably some governments are looking at your emails or your texts or who knows what? You know, it's funny. I was um, just in Ethiopia, actually. There's a difference between people, I think, who've learned to live under a regime that's authoritarian, a regime that's seen to spy on its citizens, and people who come from, you know, a freedom and then come into that regime. So I'm like very freaked out, not really because I'm worried about what the Ethiopian government might see what I email, but I'm just worried about exposing anybody who lives in the country mm-hmm. and who's much, much more vulnerable. It was funny, I was talking to an Ethiopian uh, friend of mine who said that sometimes if you're using all those special apps, you're more suspicious. You know, Mm. it's better to just call them up on the old cell phone and just know that someone else might be listening. Greg, thank you. Alrighty, thanks. Many, many thanks to Gregory Warner, Elise Hugh, and Eleanor Beardsley of NPR for taking the time to talk to us from all over the world. 
If you've got an unusual or fascinating fact about how people in your culture or country use their phone or Wi-Fi or a particular app, tell us. We're on Twitter at Note to Self, Facebook too. Email us at self at WNYC.org. Maybe we'll do a little roundup, a little crowdsourced international tech tidbit thing. Also, many thanks to you Skim readers for your letters regarding last week's critique of the Skim newsletter. Some of you thought I was a little too tough on them. Other people said that we hit on something that they'd been thinking about too. In any case, definitely an indication that it is worth talking about our news habits and how they are changing. Let's keep this topic in our wheelhouse. Next week, I've got some brilliant news I want to share with you. And just a little hint... You might get bored in the best way possible. Listen, subscribe, all that stuff, at Note to Self, on iTunes, follow, hashtag, blah, blah, blah. I don't need to tell you guys. You know I love you. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Jenna Cagle, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to Seth Kelly for his help this week. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Samarodi. Have you lived in France, Eleanor? Twelve years. Now. Twelve years. So, and you still are not sitting down for a proper lunch. I mean, people will call me and go, "I'm sorry, did I disturb your lunch?" And I'm thinking, "What lunch? I don't have lunch, you know, because <laughs> I'm always working." Or, of course, I eat lunch.